everybody. It's Chris Denson from Innovation Crush. Um, in case you're tuning in for the first time, this show covers all things marketing ideas, innovation, smart people doing smart things. Recorded live here at the SA Institute. SAE Institute. I always forget my vowels. Um, but today, the buck does not stop. Why are you laughing already? Um, hey, Orlando Jones, how are you? I'm good, brother. How you doing? <laughs> what have you done with Orlando? Oh, yeah. <laughs> the crazy part is your glasses had a weird tint, so it's like you got the evil voice. Oh, uh, do they? With, and it's good, yes, like your eyes look yellowy red. So oh, wow. It's, it's frightening. Looking sexy. I like that. Uh, frightening or sexy. Appreciate uh, it. Or you know, listen, sexy beast, if I, you will. You know what? Beauty and the Beast is about to come out. And yes, that's historically, true. Historically, we've been the beast, so no reason to switch it up now. Yes. I'm looking forward to Booty and the Beast, which is a, um, oh, huh. a film I'm working on. Oh, that uh, that sounds exciting. How many X's are on that one? Uh, we haven't. Once we get finished filming, we'll mm -hmm. see. We're trying to set a record. Oh, really? So, yeah. Most fluffers on set? Yes. It was going to be called Booty and the Bestiality. But, uh, so anyway... Welcome to another installment of the show. How are you doing today? I'm good, man. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Um, I, I want to start here. I think if someone were living under a rock and they had never heard of nor seen any of your body of work that you've done, mm -hmm. um, how would you explain what an Orlando Jones is? <laughs> I, I'm a storyteller. I, I tell stories. I don't particularly care much about the, the medium. In my experience, the, the medium has shifted over the years, as it did through music, you know, from, I guess, 78 to 45 to 33 to cassette tape. I think 8-track was thrown in there somewhere mm -hmm. uh, to, you know, digital download. But uh, I'm, I'm always reminded of uh, Eric Clapton can play the guitar. That's the craft. And he's managed to sell him playing the guitar through all those different mediums. Right. So... In my world, the medium's not important. The craft is, and as a storyteller, it doesn't really much matter where I tell the story. It just matters where that story connects with the audience, so that's what I do. What's the, uh, You talk about Eric Clapton, and especially those eras of mm -hmm. the, the delivery mechanism, sure. but Eric Clapton has been around through all those mediums. You know, uh, What is the, the timelessness of storytelling that you, know, that you gravitate toward when you look at it does, the medium doesn't matter? Because the craft is the thing, right? It's the beginning, the middle, and the end, the rising action, the falling action. It's, it's about how you engage the audience. It's a, about how the audience takes ownership of the story, and it's no longer yours the moment you put it out and how the story changes throughout the course of that process. So it's, you know, it's a dialectic process because it's shifting and changing, and that's what human history has, has always been. You know, in, in, in African tradition, we had the, the griots in the days that, held the history and told the history and passed down, this flower's poisonous, this will kill you. Right. <laughs> this animal's dangerous. <laughs> this one, not so much and if this you treat delicious. it right. You know, right, exactly. Right. So those, those elements, those lessons, you know, in the modern world aren't important when I can go down to the grocery store, but the storytelling elements that they come with that, you know, keep track of the history and uh, keep track of what's important to humanity are, are the parts that I've always gravitated to, and it's what I love about what How I How important is that part of it? I mean, because there's, there's gratuitous the storytelling, important. right? But in, in, mm -hmm. a, in the conversations I've had with, the, with you, there's mm -hmm. always a layer of depth or a layer of purpose, even mm -hmm. in the comedic stuff you've done, where it's like, mm -hmm. let's just have a good time. But, it, like, for you, there's a, like, there's a depth to it. I, I think the story is really important because so often our stories get told by other people or they get pushed into a machine who doesn't care about your story, cares about making money. But the story of um, you know, people of color, the story of women, the story of disenfranchised groups is really, to me, the story. Those are a huge element of the stories. Not to say that stories that are existing with the majority are, are lesser than. They're not, but right. they're also more... They're, they're easier to get told. They're a much larger element of the, of the machine, of the mainstream. And I think when we start talking about the things that we've been talking about for the last 50 years, mm -hmm. like diversity, <laughs> and we say we're this time. Yeah, we got it. We got you this time. We got it this time. This time we've got it. I think we, we keep following into the same pro traps because we're having the same discussion. We keep talking about diversity as if it's black and white and not disabled. Right. Disabled people represent 20% of the population. African-Americans represent, I think, 12%, 13% of the population. Latinos represent, on the high end, 16% of the population. So disabled people are, frankly... 52 million are, in the United States uh, alone. Alone. But, but when you think about representation and diversity, I do find it strange that we hire able-bodied actors to portray 
disabled characters. Right. And then we give the able-bodied actor an award for pretending to be disabled. That's kind of like blackface. But where, but but where do you draw the line? Like in in the sense of what is performance, right? If I can in, embody uh, Stephen Hawking, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, isn't there something to be said that, that that is a great performance in in some way? I, I think there is something to be said that that is a, a great interpretation of it. But you're not Stephen Hawking unless you're living with those disabilities, and those disabilities create different challenges than somebody who's able-bodied understands. So you are going to miss some level of the depth of what is attempting to be conveyed simply because the person doesn't know that. It's tantamount to a white person trying to tell you a story about racism. Well, I'm not saying that they can't intellectually understand it, but they don't know what racism is because they've never experienced it. In the same way that African Americans can't tell you about white privilege, what do we know about it? We've never experienced it. So there are different sides. Everyone has their perspective. Their perspective is valid, but when you've never really told the stories that ultimately are about the people who are the disenfranchised, then the people who are not disenfranchised consistently think that they can tell you what to feel because they understand it. No, you don't understand it. It's just like me saying, I played a dude with cancer once, so of course I understand cancer and what it's like to go through chemo. No, I don't. Right. <laughs> I don't understand that. But, here, but, here, I, so, and that's, but that's interesting, too, because I think as a storyteller, especially if I look at your core craft, right, or what you're you know, most notably uh, known for, is acting, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a great deal of empathy that comes when you absorb a character or a situation, the emotional thing that you portray. And I think even as marketers or business people, like you want to tap on that emotion anyway. Absolutely. Right? Um, to buy my product. It, mm-hmm. it means something to you. And I have to exhibit some form of empathy. Where do you draw the line between, like, uh, what's his, uh, Amistad? Jaiman um, Hansu. Yes, but not Jaiman, the director. Uh, Steven Spielberg. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I knew you knew better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, like, those, here's somebody who did not necessarily live the, neither one of them lived the experience, mm-hmm. right? But the story is so compelling, and, f- and that, maybe that's not the best example. I think it's a great example, right. actually. Um, but Jaiman Hansu was the one delivering the experience, not Steven Spielberg. Steven was the director, but the tool at which you saw that story was through the eyes of Jaiman. And that story came to Steven through Debbie Allen, who really wanted to tell the story of, uh, of the passage of African Americans during that period of time. So that's a group of people. It always takes a village. And that group can be entirely multicultural, just like the group of people who ultimately brought down apartheid were multicultural. But the people who were experiencing the oppression and the people who right. were fighting to be liberated um, were also multicultural. doesn't mean that there weren't white people involved in, in tearing down apartheid, but the people who were getting the rights were the people of color. So I look at those circumstances and go, it's far more complex than we often make it. It's far more nuanced than we often make it. And I believe that it does really require all of our energy to to do this, this fighting and tell these stories together. However, this notion that there are no people who can play these roles uh, and we must hire able-bodied people in right. 2017 is... That's a misnomer. There are people who can play those roles, and to not give them that opportunity is the diversity that we we crave. That's that's what we want, and yeah. we're not getting it because we keep going back to the same guild that has the same members to tell the story that is very similar than the story they told before. Yeah, and and that's difficult to achieve. Is, is what there we want. is there enough? Uh, like uh, you know, uh, this. Oscar's so white, right? Or what? Take your take your pick. Um, uh, <laughs> take your but pick. I, but I, I think about uh, what came to mind for me was Nacho Libre. Sure. And I went to a Nalip screening, mm-hmm. which is a National Association of Latino Independent Producers mm-hmm. of the film. And I'm like, I'm sitting there with a bunch of Hispanic people, and I'm like, I'm nervous because I'm like, here's Jack Black about to just <laughs> basically do blackface, and you know, <laughs> or that equivalent, and. The room loved it. Like it would, there would nobody was like, ah, I can't. Like there was no, you know, collective sigh or absolutely. Um, and that's one still to this day one of my favorite movies, right? And it's just like I think it's a, I think it's a slightly different thing when you're when you're lampooning something, uh, and I think it's a slightly different story when you're doing comedy. Mm. Uh, comedy is a really different thing. It, nobody can teach you how to be funny. Either you are or you aren't. <laughs> like it's just the way it works. So. It's one thing for Jack to say, I'm going to embody this character and do a comedic interpretation. When you're looking at, you know, what we were previously talking about and stories about, obviously, disabled people or even Game of Thrones where you're like, uh, or, or, I'm sorry, 
um, more The Hobbit and right. Lord of the Rings, where they were shrinking. <laughs> right. Shrinking it cost them more people. money to do the the CG, to do the effect, than to actually find the. Like you couldn't just find somebody to play that role. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm sorry, I don't get that. But my point is, is that what those characters were going through is different. That's not operating in a comedic context. Right. So it, it really does shift the storytelling a bit, and I think you have an obligation to try and have the most authenticity you can because the authenticity and the genuineness of it is what ultimately makes me lean forward. It's what draws me in. That's much harder to do when you've got somebody who doesn't occupy any of the diaspora. <laughs> right. <laughs> and doesn't really have a fundamental understanding for what that is. And I think the abuses of it are things like seeing uh, uh, Joseph Fiennes play Michael Jackson. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a gross abuse, though. That's like... <laughs> but, but again, right? But, but no one thought that they couldn't call you know, Evan Ross for that role. He right. grew up with Michael Jackson. Michael Jackson's super close to Diana Ross. Evan Ross knows more about Michael Jackson <laughs> <laughs> and has forgotten more about Michael Jackson than anyone who's ever played him. But that wasn't an option. This, this black kid who knows him wasn't an option, but this British kid who has no understanding of what that journey must have been like can bring that character to life. I don't. I don't think so. I really do think that's a that's a stretch, and it's unfortunate that we are forced to still be in those circumstances, and it's unfortunate that we still have to make those excuses, and it's really unfortunate that that those opportunities aren't going to people who are more than equipped to do the job, and they're being given to other people who, frankly, though they have all of these other options available to them, don't themselves say, you know what. I don't think this is right for me. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, even to that point, right? You know, I think at, at various points along a, someone's career journey, like mm-hmm. you, you have these balance of decisions you need to make, right? Mm-hmm. Do I want to do the career move, or do I want to do the thing that I believe in, or how do I how do I blend the two? Absolutely. And you've been super outspoken. Like I've read your Huffington Post articles about mm-hmm. diversity. Do, do you like how do you balance the? Yeah, is my career going to be in danger? And I'm sure that's a, a bit dramatic of me to say but like where do you draw that line of like what's going to be too much and what's enough well I think for me the question is one of my own integrity I mean though I operate in the Hollywood machine I'm a product of the Hollywood machine I have been blessed by the Hollywood machine I have no axe to grind or bone to pick with it but I would be being disingenuous to myself and uh, as an artist and as a and as a, a man uh, if I didn't um, acknowledge that since I entered into this business, we've been discussing diversity. It's been a conversation that my father's been having. It's a conversation that my grandfather had, my great-grandfather had. Right. And I believe I have an uh, obligation and a role to attempt to move it forward on behalf of my children, who frankly are more important to me than the machine. And if what we're going to say is that those opportunities that are afforded to people who are um, have less pigment uh, are greater and more important than those uh, the people who have pigment, then what you're really telling me is my family, my daughter, me, every a lot of the people who are in my family right. are automatically less valuable simply because their skin has pigment. And those are the rules to the game. Those were the mm-hmm. rules that I was given. I was told unequivocally, and you still hear it often today, that people of color don't translate internationally because of why? The pigment of your skin. So if what you're asking me to accept is we're all equal. Civil rights is over. Um, there's really no issue. But your skin you still makes about? you less valuable. Right. As an artist, what artist, <laughs> what artist would accept those terms? Isn't that the reason yeah. we do art in the first place? To, to showcase that we're all human, we're all a part of this dice, where all of our stories are important. But right? listen, and I think, the, I mean, there's something, I feel like there's a duality to it, because I think some of the artistry, you know, you look at uh, Richard Pryor, a great mm-hmm. comedian, or even an Eminem, right? That's a, that's a whole, like, switching that model on, the, on his head. The GOAT. Like, comes from... Exa- Eminem is Detroit. the GOAT. You see the hat right there? Um, no, but this, this idea that, you know, the struggle kind of pushes the art, right? Like the anger, the frustration kind of gets expressed, whether it's through comedy or through music or through like, fuck you, I'm building a business of my own and and watch what happens. I I would argue that Eminem is the GOAT because, you know, he had a very difficult struggle being a rapper who happened to be white. 
and he has kept his eyes on the prize the entire time. He's written hard. He's worked hard. He doesn't have one hook in a song. He has like five hooks in a song. Mm -hmm. He's the GOAT because he worked for it and because he had the talent, but he didn't rest on that talent alone. So, look, as a hardcore hip-hop fan, I'd take great pride in saying that as far as I'm concerned, the greatest of all time is this white dude right here. Mm -hmm. But funny how the struggle pops up that way, right? Yeah, right. Funny, funny how it, it doesn't care about color anymore, but it does care about opportunity. He wouldn't be the GOAT if he didn't get the opportunity, and he got the opportunity because Dre and those people believed that he had the talent and gave him the opportunity. Right. They didn't say, you know what, you're a white dude, so you ain't going to translate to these black people, so we ain't going to put you in the game. But a lot of people didn't say that to him. Exactly. That's the thing. But the people you know? who were in the position of making the decision didn't say that. In fact, they empowered him, and that's the role that I believe I have, that we all have as artists, to not sit around and go, let's make excuses for why the status quo can continue to do what it's doing, but let's actually empower the people who aren't getting the opportunities. And, and really... I'm not really concerned about pissing off somebody in Hollywood because if that's what's pissing you off, you hate me already. You're right. not giving me the opportunity already. You don't want me in the game already. <laughs> and if that's how you feel, what am I, wait, I'm going to kiss your ass while you hit me in the head with a hammer and then shoot me in the face? No, thank you. I want to treat you respectfully. I want you to treat me respectfully. We are not at odds with each other. It's a pretty violent outcome. You just, it is. Yeah. It, it's very violent <laughs> outcome. But hold on. But as long as I'm the nigga who ain't worth nothing, excuse my French. <laughs> I don't think that's French, but... <laughs> it's North Vietnamese. It's North Vietnamese. You're right. As long as that's who I am in that scenario and you don't know me, you don't know where I came from, you don't know my heart, you don't know my mind, you don't know my soul, if that's where we are, right. then you're right. We're at odds. <laughs> um, why does hip-hop resonate with you? You know, I came up when hip-hop was that, that music, that thing to turn off in the other room. You know, my parents hate hip-hop, hip -hop, as most uh, older black people do. They don't like all that talking and rapping. They like R&B. They like gospel. My so, mom used to say, turn off all that boop-de-boop -boop music. Exactly. I was like, what is boop-de-boop? -boop? Uh, uh, right. My mom Which is the genre I'm going to invent in a couple boop -de -boop of years. Boop-de-boop is a hot genre, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah they, I think they, they got it in the techno. Boop-de-boop-de-boop-de-boop-de-boop. Uh, but my, my mom hated it. My dad hated it. You know, my aunts and uncles hated it. But it was my music. It was, it was the music that spoke to me. Like, I, I heard these young black dudes talking about things that I understood, talking about experiences that were real for me. When I looked in other places, I, I didn't see my story being told that way. So, you know, when Public Enemy came along, it was like a revelation. I, I, I couldn't believe that people were saying this. I, I couldn't believe that there was other people who saw what yeah. I was seeing. And that was extremely empowering for me at a very critical point in, in, in my life when I could have gone the road where a lot of my friends rode, went that led to death in some cases and often led to imprisonment, um, but often uh, were just broken dreams, you know what I mean? And, and hip-hop was something that guided me the other way. With all the negativity, with all the illicit language, with all of those elements, <laughs> right. I was still empowered by it. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. Um, being a fan, I think you're also, uh, you know, when I look at you as sort of this empathetic storyteller. Um, <laughs> not pathetic story. It's, I say empathetic. It's a, Either way. It like <laughs> I'm a pathetic storyteller. You're an empathetic storyteller. That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, like just being a fan of the work that you create, you work a lot in like fanboy culture, you sure. know, whether it's the Sleepy Hollows or the upcoming American Gods. Congratulations mm -hmm. on that. Thank you. Um, you know, but do you enjoy being a fan as much as you enjoy being a creator? Or like, how does that dynamic work with you? I am a fan. Everybody's a fan. We all started off seeing something that inspired us, that made us go, I want to do that. No matter who you are, no matter what you do, Kobe Bryant's a Michael Jordan fan. That's who he is. So I don't know how to separate what got me here, what made me, what inspired me from who I am today, right? Yeah. So I actually think who I am today is I'm, I'm not a celebrity. That's irrelevant to me. I'm a fan. I always will be. And that's where I live because I still get excited <laughs> about silly stuff. I just I identify more as a fan girl than I do as a fan boy because I don't want to have to be reserved and cool about what I'm excited about. I want to have all the you feels. You want to be able to scream if you. I'll, all the squeeze, brother. All the <laughs> squeeze, all the feels. And that's important to me that I get to experience it the same way I did when I was a kid and suddenly Lando Calrissian popped up in Star Wars, and I was like, oh, 
oh, it's going down. It's going. Oh, give me the lightsaber. I mean, I lost my mind, but right. I'd never seen myself represented in that world before. That was extremely important to Did me. Did you also have time. a perm at the time? Uh, uh, I didn't uh, know. Um, I had yeah, nine. Uh, <laughs> I had a perm uh, when I was nine. That'd be a, that would be a yeah. cool kid. I don't know if you'd have met my mama, <laughs> but my mama in no way, shape, or form saw James Brown as a road for me to go down. Right. But, but I think that's also like I mean again like these you know I, I love this because it's this idea of storytelling. Lando Calrissian is very different than NWA. Very right? much so. Both those you know both those things spoke to you very much so. in, in a way, and I think you know kind of speaks to. Um, the dynamic individual that you've become, like this this polymath, if you will, uh, and I'll <laughs> say, you know, music, you know, acting, comedy, uh, bit like branded entertainment, your whole branded entertainment studio. Yeah. You're into VR. Like, what is what's the exploration muscle? Where does that come from? Uh, when I first got introduced to the Harlem Renaissance, it was fascinating to me because I had not really heard a lot about it at school, besides somebody telling me that there was this thing called the Harlem Renaissance. <laughs> And as I started to look into it and look at those artists and started to read a lot of the artists that came out of that, one of the things I noticed is they told stories against multiple disciplines. They were painters, they were they were writers, they were they were prose, they were beat poets, they were all of these various things. And in some cases also actors as well, they were engineers, just people who were inventing, right? Who were who were uh, trying to change the the world and the circumstances of themselves and the people around them. And I was really inspired by the Harlem Renaissance and all that it represented and deeply inspired by James Baldwin and reading his collected essays and The Price of the Ticket. And as I started to read that and Du Bois and Douglas and um, uh, uh, VC and mm -hmm. these lost figures along the way who really were the foundation to tremendous change, I just became inspired by the idea that I no longer had to tell stories in a way that the that anybody told me I had to tell them. I could work in the branded world and try and tell stories using advertising that spoke to me and hopefully served their purpose. And I could work on comedies and tell stories that made people laugh. And I could work in dramas and tell stories that you know, made people feel empathy in different ways. Or I could take music and tell a three minute story. But the one thing I was always clear on is that the story always had an amount of time in the mainstream it always had an outlet, right? So it's always like, if it's 30 seconds, it's 15 seconds, oh, well, that's a commercial. Well, if it's a 45 or a minute, minute and a half, oh, that's an infomercial. Well, if it's 21 to 30 minutes, that's a half hour. Uh, if it's 44 to 60 minutes, that's an hour. If it's over 72 minutes, that's a movie. If it's 144 minutes or more, that's a double feature. But all I was trying to do in each one of those elements and all any artist is trying to do in each one of those venues, those paradigms, is tell their story. Right. And the amount of time they've been given to try and convey what they're trying to convey. And it, it, that really sort of stuck with me because that's what was happening during the Renaissance. These people had diminished opportunities for distribution, and they were using every tool they could to try and push out that story. Because right. you don't do this to make money. You do this because if you, if you don't do it, you'll die. You do it because you have to create. You, you, you must uh, Storytell, and and if, if that's not the drive in you, this ain't the job for you. Unless you just want to make money, at which point there's tons of people around here who are only here to make their money. But that's not <laughs> what I'm here for. <laughs> um, I think when people, you know, I, a lot. I think a lot of us view ourselves as a multi hyphenate of some sort. Or, we all are. Yeah. Um, but you know, to to most of us, it's like we need to do X. There's an order of operations, right? Yes. Like, so what what was your first step? You know, and like, was it common? Like, what was the first thing? You're like, all right, I'm going to start down this path. And then when did it begin to open up, like, and, and really achieve real results? Well, that, that I think, sort of began to give me a, a better understanding about how business works and also just to sort of take the complication away and get really simple. So what will they pay me to do right now? <laughs> how can I make a living right now? What's the lowest hanging fruit? Right. Then what is business? Well, I, it occurred to me that it's a transaction. And you have to identify in every transaction who pays. And it's really simple. Either I pay or you pay. There's no such thing as somebody else pays. But artists often approach it thinking that there's this other thing over there that's going to pay. And that other thing over there that they look for is a broken business model. It doesn't exist. 
So once I got clear on that, I was like, they'll pay me to do this, do that. Try and become as successful as you can. Try and do the best job you can at this moment with these tools to tell this story. Use that to get someone else to help you do the next thing to achieve and tell the next story. And one of the things I quickly realized was comedy was something that I could do um, very easily. I could write it. Uh, I didn't need any help. Low overhead. <laughs> it's low overhead. <laughs> Go stand on a stage, try and open right. mic. Um, in the same way that if you pick up an instrument and you start to play it, it, you know, those were sort of jump starters. And then I started listening to the audience and getting a clear sense for what people were and weren't, weren't responding to. And I started getting jobs. And those jobs led me to different opportunities. And my first job in the business was actually as a writer. So because writing was something I could do where I literally needed no one else. It's just right. me and a pen. And I got my first job as a writer, and then that actually opened doors for me to do what I really wanted to do as an actor, which I'd been working on. And, uh, and then I had that opportunity, and then suddenly, because of my success on the oddly... It was a very weird trajectory. I started off really sort of getting acting recognition in the Hollywood machine for the first time doing... Um, a uh, show called FX, uh, Sound Effects on FX. So, Don't recall that. So, <laughs> of course you <laughs> would. When FX launched into 18 million homes in New York City, right. we had the FX apartment at 26th and 5th in New York, and it was a lab, and we were experimenting in what people now call reality television. Mm. So the big breakfast was done by Tom Bergeron. That was the big two-and-a-half-hour morning show with him and Laurie Hibbard. Um, you had Jeff Probst answering oh, viewer wow. mail uh, on a show called Back Chat. You had Phil Kogan from Amazing Race doing a collectible show, and you had me doing a one-hour live music show called Sound Effects. So we pushed that program. Were you doing like Michael Winslow kind of? Uh, <laughs> 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 Sorry. I, I was doing helicopters. Yeah. <laughs> 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 so I did a consumer guide to music show where I interviewed people like um, Arrested Development, Nirvana, uh, you know, Indigo Girls, you name right. it, all types. Of, and I recommended music. So instead of being a VJ, I actually gotcha. had an opinion about the music. So I left that show doing a one-hour live show, live to air every night, and auditioned and got on Mad TV. So I went from this reality TV show to a sketch comedy show as a writer-performer, and then I left the sketch comedy show and ended up in the feature business, but as a dramatic actor. And then I had to fight to get a dramatic, um, to get a comedic role, because once I did a role as a dramatic actor, people thought I wasn't funny, so people ignored Mad TV and only pointed to Barry Levinson and, you know, and... Magnolia with uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. So right. I had to fight to get the replacements because suddenly I was in these very serious Academy A-list director dramas. And right. then, then I had to get in comedies. And then once I sort of made that bridge change, I sort of got a chance to do more comedies and then some horror and then more drama. And next thing I knew, I'd looked up. I'd been moving along all these different roads, but ultimately just trying to find a character that I identified with. Right. And I didn't really care so much about the genre because my job was kind of the same, was to bring it to life. And next thing I knew, I'd worked in all these different genres and all these different formats, and I was kind of like, oh, wow, this is all really the same yeah, to Look me. at that trail back there. Yeah, and, but everybody else thought it was weird. Like, that was, that was the one thing that always stuck out. People. Well, even, uh, you know, it's like perception is reality, right? And, yes. And we had a conversation about this uh, along the lines of your work with brands, right? The, sure. The, and congratulations on the Ghost Recon film. That was thank awesome. You, thank you, People go look it up. I'll spare you the details. But Amazon, uh, Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon, uh, War Within the Cartels. You can see it for free on Amazon or on Twitch. There you go. I yeah. see. I told you. you. And then you gave him the details. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it, 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 you said this phrase that kind of stuck with me because we were joking. He was like, I say that all the time, but sometimes people go, oh, that guy's the actor. Yes. Right? And in dealing with brands, you've worked with Hawaiian, what, uh, King's Hawaiian, Mountain Dew. Uh, Farmers Insurance, 7-Up, yeah. uh, uh, Radio Shack, uh, LG, the list goes on. And your whole, like, uh, in developing concepts, you know, you, you're behind the scenes. Like, there's a lot of stuff that you, sure. you know, nobody knows Orlando Jones was a part of this, you mm -hmm. know, these marketing and advertising moments. Mm -hmm. How do you go into a room with a state farm as Orlando the marketer <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and have that be a believable conversation uh, versus, you know, in getting over that whole, like, the perception or misperception. You take somebody with you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, it's really the truth of the matter. Right. Um, you know, 
it's important to recognize when you're the shiny toy. And in those rules, I'm the shiny toy. Uh, uh, most rooms, people are not interested in what I think about anything. Uh, and that's completely cool with me because... Aside from this room. Well, this was, you pretend to care, and I appreciate that. My I'm also an actor. I know that. You're very good, by the way. Uh, my wife is not an actor, so she tells me all the time, I don't really care what you think about nothing. <laughs> Go do this, and I do it. Um, but I think it's important um, for artists to have a biz dev person, um, and I think a business uh, development person is really important for, for artists. Uh, and it, it doesn't take away from an agent. It doesn't take away from a manager. But it's important for someone to be looking at you as a brand and not a celebrity. So if all I wanted to do was walk in and look at myself as a celebrity, then I have no business in that room behind the scenes. But as a brand, I have a really particular challenge, and I believe it's a challenge that all artists have, no matter what race, creed, color, sex, irrelevant. There's only one of us. We can't be in two places at once. As a business case, we don't scale they can just make more iPhones or Beats by Dre or cameras. They make more, they sell more. They can't make more of you. Only your mom and daddy can do that. And the next one is different. So when you think about yourself as a brand, you go, well, how am I monetizing what I do when I'm sleeping or when I'm standing here? Because you're either making money or you're losing money every day when you work as an artist. Every time they're not paying you, it costs you money. It costs you money to get there. It costs you money to spend that time because that's time you could have spent over here right. making money. But everybody thinks it's a party going on. But ultimately, it's not a party going on because you have to function as a brand. So when I go into those rooms and I'm talking about creative with a brand, I'm really thinking about you guys are trying to reach people on the eyeball side. I'm trying to talk to people authentically as a fan. I know that your business is about selling the adjusted case volume. So you don't really care about what I care about. But my business is connecting with people legitimately. Right. So our interests are somewhat aligned, but our objectives are entirely diametrically opposed. So I think that's crucially important to just consider when you think about how I need to present myself. And if all I was doing was acting, for me, that... That, that cuts a lot into my bottom line. It doesn't allow me to do a lot of the things that I want to do because I'm only doing this one thing. Right. Um, and I think, you know, when you try those other things, you get a clear sense of what your skill set is. And I felt like I had the skill set to do these different things. Yep. Um, and uh, I had why the opportunity. Why did you care? Right? Like, why did you, why did you care to even work with brands? You know, like, because there's a lot of things you, there's a lot of things we all could do. Sure. And then it's like, okay, I could do that, or I did it, or whatever. But then you, like, you banked on it, right? Like, that's, I, had, that's, that's, I had to because I started to understand how certain elements worked. And one of the big takeaways for me was understanding certain elements of the business. So people say, oh, it's the television business. And no one ever talks about what it really is. The television business is the advertising business because it's predominantly paid for by advertisers. So all television is about is selling products. That's what it's for, for the advertisers. That's why they're paying the bill. For the storytellers, it's a completely different game. So once I realized that the financial aspects of the business that I was in on the television side are entirely contingent as it relates to networks and to a large degree even cable channels on advertisers. And as cable sort of became um, a growing uh, universe of channels and what have you, the only difference was you pay your cable bill every month. So they don't really care whether you watch or not because you pay your cable bill every month. That's a different business model. Right. And then I realized that Movies was the banking business, which no one had ever explained to me. Everybody, I thought movies was about coming up with this awesome idea that people wanted to see. And that's not what it's about at all. It's about half the money makes the movie go. It's about does it reach this audience um, globally? And can it be distributed to those people? And can you grab that market share? But all movies are based on do you have the money to make this project go? Mm -hmm. And how do you... How do you deal with soft money versus hard money? That's how it. That's what actually gives you the tools to do the thing that I care about, which is to tell the story. But as an artist, if what you think is your idea is what they're buying in that room, you're you're delusional. Right. That's the not show what they're business. Buying. Like they're like you know. Why do most they, artists are focused on the show. They buy packages. Why? Because those packages give you a sense of comfort because they give you a bunch of named entities, named individuals, named brand, as in celebrities that they know, right. that in theory mean that these people are going to show up, that in theory mean they're going to make money. 
But the truth of the matter is that's often a losing money yeah. proposition. So the algorithm that decides that doesn't really make any sense. Once again, perception decides mm-hmm. who gets the job, what gets made, what doesn't get made based on things that have nothing to do with what we well, care it's the about. Sa- it's the same thing in the startup ecosystem, right? Like it's exactly. like who's on your team, who's on your advisory board, what have you done? <laughs> like make yourself do, legitimate. Yes, do okay, I'm comfortable giving you this check. Exactly. Right? Um and I think most people and I think the same thing happens in business where it's like I have a great business idea and I know it'll make some money. It's like I, but I'm the guy with the check, I don't know you. If yes. Your idea sounds great, and you know, if, and who pays? If you're really not smart. I'm going to take your thought and go make it myself, right? Like, yes. <laughs> and who so pays? Much. Do I know the person who pay, or do you know the person who pays? If <laughs> right. I know the person who pays, what do I need you for? Right. I can just go get that person myself. Oh, he stole my idea. Nah, he knew the person who pays. Right. Yes, he kind of did, but really, he knew the person who paid. He knew he could do it, and you couldn't. And you're never going to be able to prove that you could. So it's always tricky with IP, right? And if what you think, this was my first big lesson in Hollywood, was I, I got robbed blind when I first got to town. Because I was just in meetings telling people all sorts of things. And then I started seeing my idea show up places. Yeah. I was like, whoa, that's, I literally handed you a tape of that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you're using some of the same things I said on that tape. Wow. And I turned to my manager and I was like, yo, they stole my idea. And he goes, if you came here with one idea <laughs> and what you finna do is cry about that, you need to get out of my office. And I was like, oh, wow. He was like, go come up with another one. Please, right now, and stop talking to me right. about the one that got lost along the way. And I was like, oh, wow, he's right. And I've never complained about that before because the truth of the matter is, how do I know those people didn't have an idea similar to that before I showed up? I simply pointed out to them something that they knew how to get done that I didn't know how to get done, so maybe they didn't steal my idea. Right. And I, and I also feel like there's an emotional lesson in that, especially if you are banking on that one idea. and like Yes. You kind of... Put dump your emotional value into that project, right? Exactly. And then not realizing like that's a repeatable power. That's correct. It's a repeatable, but like, and so then you go like, okay, you move on to. The, and it's also if you choose to look at it this way, it could be a flattering moment when that idea gets told. And you're like, ah, that was actually good enough to steal. Absolutely. So <laughs> let me make another one and that's not exactly, and, like, yes. and keep it a little closer to the vest. That was my takeaway because right. what I clearly understood was complaining about my belief system that this had happened to me was not something anybody cared about. <laughs> but they did care about, do you have something else? And so I chose to focus my energy there as opposed to there. But I think it still all comes back to the same thing. I arrived at the juncture learning a lot, having a tremendous number of mentors, and, and trying to really stay open to the information that they were giving me, generally when I didn't want to hear it. <laughs> Most of the time, I didn't want to hear it. But uh, So let's talk, let's talk American Gods for a, a quick second. Sure. Um, the central premise of the novel which is now a TV show, mm-hmm. is that gods and mythological creatures exist because people believe in them. Mm-hmm. Immigrants to the United States brought with them spirits and gods. Mm-hmm. The power of these mythological beings has diminished as people's beliefs wane. Mm-hmm. New gods have arisen. Arisen! No, I'm just kidding. That was <laughs> Refl- good, Ari- Arisen! Mm-hmm. I told you I'm going to act on this whole thing. Arisen. <laughs> arisen! My god, the dead has arisen. If anybody knows what movie that's from, uh, send me a a tweet. Orlando, Uh, is that you? (laughs) If anybody knows what movie that's from, send me a tweet. The most important. (laughs) 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 Uh, By the way, I was going to fan out for a second because I was um, office space. I was probably like one of the things I quote, maybe on a monthly basis, you (laughs) coming showing up at the door. Um, Good evening, sir. My name is Steve. I come from a rough area. I used to be a dictocrat, and now I'm trying to stay clean. I believe the hard work will help me stay clean and make a better life for myself, and that's why I'm selling magazines for subscription. <laughs> it was like it was like one of my fans in the whole the body movement. That was great. <laughs> so hold on. New gods have arisen, reflecting America's obsession with media, celebrity, technology, and drugs, among other things. Mm-hmm. You being a deep individual, this is a very like awesome satirical take on our obsession with the, that last mm-hmm. sentence. Um, how? much do you relate to this story? And talk, you can talk a little bit about your character as well, but like... Wow. Uh, man, look, I'm a huge Neil Gaiman fan. Um, I read this novel and it, it just, it, it took me away. I mean, I, it, it took my breath away. Um, it, the way the characters are developed, uh, I really felt a strong connection because I'm from the southern United States. Um, so I've been hearing stories about Anansi my entire life. Uh, Anansi is an African god, a spider god, a trickster god. And to see that story survive the middle passage from, from Africa and still spread itself throughout the southern United States 
as a part of the history of you know, this, this country that I came from, you know, for Neil Gaiman to be writing those type of characters was surprising to me, right? Because I wasn't encountering those characters often in the mainstream business. And frankly, my entire career is the first time I've been able to play this type of role. So this was like a, a dream come true. I'm obsessed with American Gods. I'm a huge fan. I'm a massive fan of Neil Gaiman. I'm a huge fan of Brian Fuller, who I think, along with Michael Green, are some of the best writers I've ever worked with. I mean, I'd have to put Alex Kurtzman and Bob Orsi in that realm as well, who I think were amazing writers. But I am particularly a fangirl of, of Brian and Michael. And Mr. Nancy was, you know, this thing floating out in the ether that I never thought would come my way. But the story is powerful. Uh, and it speaks so much to, I think, a lot of what we're going through right now, the gods we worship. You know, some people worship the god of, of 45, our new POTUS. Um, shots fired, shots fired. <laughs> Uh, 45, <laughs> 45, <Caliber>. 45. <laughs> shots fired. That, that's my, that's my favorite joke about it. But whatever God you worship is the God you worship. And everybody thinks their God is better than your God. That's part of the way, you know, we work as humans. We're naturally clannish people, but this piece in particular, um, I think brings them to light. And I love the idea of how we worship the old gods and the new gods of technology that we represent. And I love the idea that Storm, played by Ricky Whittle, who's amazing in this, along with Ian McShane and, you know, Kristen Chenoweth, with him, and it's like, you know, Julian it's Anderson. Cast, it's like, yeah. it's an amazing, amazing cast. It's really, I was really blessed last year and, and, and to a large degree this year because I found myself playing two African characters, one a real-life superhero in Oliver Tambo and Madiba, and another one, a fictional, shall we say, god in Anansi, where I'm playing roles that are, are more connected to the, the history of where I came from uh, at this juncture in my career than I was at any other point. And I, I just, I feel honored and really, I mean, it, I, people say it like it's a cliche all the time, but real talk, like I'm just, I'm humbled by the idea that I got there. I'm humbled by the fact that Brian and Michael called me and were like, do you want to play Mr. Nancy? And that Neil signed off on it and was like, yo, yes, right. I follow him on Twitter. <laughs> and I know, you know, and I knew a bunch of fans who I really got to give a, a lot of, I think I have this job largely because of the fans and Michael and, and Brian's involvement in fandom, they literally like, the fans really kind of want Orlando Jones to do this. Let's talk to him about it. Mm. So for me, I got put in this position really by, uh, by, by the fans. Is it ironic that, you know, the new gods in the storyline are kind of the things that put food on your table, right? Like there's media, yeah. technology, celebrity, pop culture, like... Exactly right. I mean, they, they put food on my table, but I think the difference is that... Um, the, the old gods had an authenticity to them, you know. Um, the, the worship was about something different, you know, something different. It was about those values of that time. Uh, our values are a bit different. Um, and I don't think it's because we are less moral. It's just because we are reliant on things that are a few steps away from what we need, like food, clothing, and shelter are not things we think about. Like, I don't... I go to the grocery store to pick up food. I ain't got to go get no hammer or gun and go kill something and skin it and figure out how to cook it. I ain't got to grow it for like <laughs> three months and hope it, you know, I can make a meal out of it. Like, I, I don't know. But as a side project. As a side project, it's off the chain. Who doesn't compost? <laughs> but, you know what I mean? Like, it. I, I, I'm, I'm a digital nerd. I love tech. I, I, I believe in technology. I truly do. And, and where it's taking us, but by the same token, uh, I'm I'm struggling to figure out like everyone is how to hold on to uh, what connects us as as humans. And one of the things I learned in a lot of my VR work is when I'm in the world in VR, I consistently find myself wanting to connect with the people who are next to me in the room. Right. But in the VR world, I'm sort of siloed off. I'm isolated, mm -hmm. and, I, and I really miss that, that connection with other people that, that I get when I'm on stage comedy. But by the same token, and here's sort of the, you know, the feather in technology's cap. In the early part of my career, there wasn't, there wasn't any way to connect with fans in real time while something was on. Now I can live tweet something while it's on, and it's kind of like theater, but it's a little different, but, mm -hmm. but I'm still connecting with them. And I would never be able to hear what all those people have to say, but I can with the hashtag, uh, and I can on Facebook, because that's a different type of communication. And for me, that's, that's why American God speaks to me so deeply, because I really believe that human history has had two forms of communications for uh, 
I don't know, over 200,000 years, right? It's one-to-one what we're doing and one-to-many. I mean, that's literally been it. There's been no other way to communicate. One-to-one, one-to-many. Nine years ago, many-to-many communication showed up. That's what Twitter is. That's what the news feed is on the Facebook wall. Never before has everybody in the room been able to talk to everybody in the room. That's different. Mm. Are there experts in it? No, it's nine years old. It's a fourth <laughs> grader. So, or maybe 10 years old at this point, I might have my math wrong, but the, the gist of my point remains. We're all figuring that element out because technology has done this the same way technology is taking jobs because AI is taking jobs. But how do we look at these elements and, and treat them in a way that helps empower people and gives them those roles and those jobs and those ways for to provide for their families back? As an artist, that's a huge part of, of my journey because I can promise you, ain't nobody listening when they're hungry. When your stomach growling, right. <laughs> like, turn right. that American gods off, somebody make me a sandwich. <laughs> make me an American sandwich. <laughs> make me an American sandwich. That's what I need right now, okay, with some American ham and some American cheese on it. That's what I need, you know, so I, 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 I can't help but think about those things because to divorce myself from the audience the way I often do in VR is to divorce myself from my fans and to divorce myself from myself because I'm the fan. Mm. I'm the one sitting there looking at it, having a good time, just like you are. I'm no different. Um, And American Gods kind of takes all of these themes that we've talked about today and shoves them together and then pushes them out in this crazy, beautiful story art form um, that, you know, Brian and Michael and the team at Stars and Fremantle and everyone has really put together. So, you know, high point in my career, man. I'm I'm, I'm so grateful and so, so blessed. Did you know there's a Jones High School in Orlando, Florida? Yes, did you know that I've been there and taken pictures of myself all over there? No, I didn't. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah, my nerd game I is I was going to stump you. No, my nerd game is real. So <laughs> I actually want to do a show that's based in that high school where I play all the characters. <laughs> I want to be the PE coach. <laughs> I, I, want to be, I want to be the little girl in the hot dress. I want to right. play all the characters. That's right. I want to take a role away from somebody, some girl and play the girl in the dress in a comedy, <laughs> deal with it, and no, I'm not playing Madiba. Yes, that was an April Fool's joke that I pulled right. on Tyler Perry. Please stop being mad at me about it. It was funny. Stop it. Uh, it was funny because I, I, when I Googled it, I, like I was Googling you just to like, oh, let me get some additional questions. It was right, like, right. Orlando Jones, hi. And I was like, is he? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what, is he, what has he done? And I was like, oh, there's actually. I, I said I was replacing Tyler Perry in the role of Mediba on April Fool's a couple of years ago. And yes. people took it for real. So suddenly all the news agencies picked it up and they were like, Orlando Jones is playing Mediba. So about 15 days later, finally Tyler Perry put out a tweet that said what Orlando Jones said is not true and not funny. And I was like, okay, you got me on the truth part. Right. But funny? I put out a picture with me as a white woman and said I was replacing you as Mediba and people took it as true. Come on, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's funny. That is, uh, to me, that, that's funny. Uh, but it's also like it's, it also speaks to the power of social media, right? It's, it you does. Know, it's the forty-five problem. You're like you say something, every, now uh, everybody believes it for an extended period for of time. Extended period like, of time. And you're like, oh, well, that never happened. It was like, what ever happened to that Madiba movie with, uh, with right. Orlando Jones? Like, <laughs> that's the god, the, the, the god of technology is a, an interesting thing to worship because right. you, you, uh, you don't check sources very often. Nobody goes to page three of the Google search. They look at the first page. They figure they know everything there is to know. There's no reason to dig further. Yeah, and that's a uh, that's an unfortunate thing because. Uh, uh, if we continue our relationships that way where we don't need to know the whole picture, we just need to know the surface, then we, we find ourselves in situations like 45. Shots fired. Shots fired. Uh, uh-oh. <laughs> Some violence in here. Started off violence, and then we're uh, winding down violently. <laughs> uh, two black guys, violence. Well, yeah, well, the story continues. The, the police will be here soon, exactly. right? Exactly. <laughs> and a Hispanic engineer, like it's all kinds of. Um... Yeah. By the way, all of us going to jail. There's no question about this. <laughs> I've already made inappropriate comments, rambled on, talked I outside. S- I of said my bestiality. Breath. That's. I think that's illegal. I'm not in this bestiality thing. I didn't all. say you were into it. Speaking of which, you're a vegan, though. I am. Uh, why? What does that do for you? Um, especially when you, when you think about the gods that we worship, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it, it's food. Yeah, right? man, uh, huge some God. people are like vegan. What? Um, but like, why? Why is that a choice for you? Grandmother, breast cancer. Uh, I was young. I was 17 years old. Uh, she had been taking high blood pre- high blood pressure medication for 20 years. Suddenly, I was you know in a hospital, and 
she was getting ready to pass away. She had a double mastectomy, and I turned to the doctor and I said, "Hey, um, uh, you think uh, those high blood pressure pills she was taking for the last twenty years contributed to her breast cancer?" And he was like, "Ah, oh, well, son, they don't really test those outside of two or three years because the FDA doesn't require it. And when they do test, they usually test for." Um, people who are going to abuse taking the drug because people who won't follow the descriptions and instructions, and those people create their own market. So that's really what they're looking for there. They're not really studying it for 15 years to know the effects of it. I'm like, wait, wait, but isn't high blood pressure curable by diet? So couldn't she have just eaten healthy or not had to take these pills at all? He's like, yeah, yeah, of course she could have done that. And I go, but she thought when she took the pills that it was curing the high blood pressure. Isn't that what y'all told her? And he said, no, 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 no. We, we made a suggestion that she could solve it this way. We told her to eat healthier. I'm like, yeah, I don't, I don't think she understood that. I don't, I don't think anybody really made that clear. You waited till she got 55 and then told her she had to stop eating everything she'd been eating her entire life, and she died at 60. So I don't want to be a part of the system, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and look at what I'm eating and try and understand what I'm putting in my body so I don't you know, follow the fate. And frankly, that was my grandmother. Before she passed away, she, she asked me to do better, and she, um, we were super close, and um, it just... Um, it changed the course of my life because I didn't know what she meant by do better, but she held my hand and she looked me in the eye and she, it was important to her that I try. Mm. And I took that away as try and take care of myself better and try and um, head off things that were obviously coming my direction. And so I've remained vegan. You know, I'm all save the animals, save the planet. I'm with all that. But for me, it was really about uh, the relationship with my grandmother and the, the black woman that raised me and the, and how they, uh, you know, challenged me to to try and uh, break away from the chitlins <laughs> and <laughs> do better. Pulled you out the room, like screaming, <laughs> kicking, and screaming. No, give me my chitlins! But I know how to clean I it. I want my chitlins. I want my. You just use a clap of Clorox in the water when you clean it. Why y'all tripping? Put some hot sauce on it. <laughs> Let me go. <laughs> oh God! And I, by the way, I did miss my chitlins. Um, uh, so. That's that's a rare statement, by the way. I don't think anybody's ever said I miss chitlins. I'm from Mobile, Alabama. Let All me right. be clear. I'm from Pritchett, Alabama. So that means when you in Mobile, you go, "You from Pritchett? <laughs> <laughs> you alive?" <laughs> like okay. I remember listening to people talk about like Brick City, because you know when you're in the South, all you all, New Yorkers and people in LA talk about their cities like they killing it. Like, yo, son, yo, real talk, son. I was like, yeah. Where I'm from, nobody calls you son. There's no protestation. Nobody's like, what's going to happen is, like, they don't tell you that at all. They just walk up and shoot you. Right. And then they walk away quietly. Yeah. That's far scarier to me. No, well, I see, that's me, like, growing up in Detroit. I remember I came out here, and it was like, gangs? I don't know if I'm really scared of gangs. Like, I get it. I get it. But it's like, in, in, in where I grew up, like, you didn't know who was who or exactly who was doing right. what and when. Like, and when. I remember we, we pulled up in my driveway one time. And my next door neighbor, like literally the house next door to ours, was like taking a screwdriver to our side door trying to get in our house. So we were like, my mom just backed out the driveway and we went across the street <laughs> and to the neighbor to the other neighbor's house and hung out for a couple of hours. <laughs> it was like, well, let him finish doing what he gonna do. So, <laughs> so I, it's like, okay, I, if you're readily identifiable by uh, some bandanas, I'm like, okay, I, I, I get it. Listen, I feel the same way about that as I felt about the rebel flag. I'm like, fly your asshole flag high. I want to know where you are. Oh, yeah. So I know who to avoid. Stop telling them fools to take them flags down. Let them fly their flags. <laughs> <laughs> You're dangerous in this color. You're dangerous in this color. Anyone got some fuchsia, uh, magenta, uh, a cerulean <laughs> blue? Uh, uh, them colors don't seem dangerous at all. <laughs> so speaking of gangs. Yes, sir. The show is called Innovation. Uh, there's no segue. I just, I just <laughs> we're running out of time. Um, the show is called Innovation Crush. Mm-hmm. Um, what is your current Innovation Crush? You've seen a lot. You've talked about a lot from technology to cuisine to storytelling <laughs> to you know you name it. Um, what do you currently see out there? Did you like? Oh my gosh, that's the thing that's giving me goosebumps right now. Uh, I think the thing that's giving me goosebumps is a lot of the work that uh, you're doing uh, with wearables. I think the thing that's giving me goosebumps is uh, a lot of the the young. Uh, performers that are out there that are telling their stories and figuring out how to get it out there uh, and reach their audiences um, um, without really the help of, of, of a machine or a, uh, I'm really em- empowered and excited to to be a part of that that renaissance that's moving forward because it really just means that storytellers who previously had no way to get their story out there now can get their story out there so and I see technology doing that democratizing the process changing distribution 
Um, and you can tell your story now. You don't have to wait on anybody. You can tell it on Instagram. You can tell it on Facebook video. You can, you can tell it on Snapchat. It doesn't matter what you tell it. You can tell it on YouTube. Just tell it and, right. and start to build an audience. I'm super excited because that wasn't true before. I also think there's a tremendous amount of distribution happening on, in all industries uh, by virtue of tech. And this is an opportunity um, for us to... Uh, to, to change the world that we see in front yeah. of us. So I, I believe that it's us versus them. Uh, it's us who want to leave this world better than we found it and them who think the status quo that we're in is okay. And I think if you take a defeatist attitude, that can uh, easily find you looking at the division that's happening in our country politically. But to me, these deplorables that we talk about are our family, our uncles, our sisters, our brothers, our mothers. And if we don't find a narrative that connects with the people that we don't care about, then we're guilty of the same thing that we're accusing them of. Right. So, you know, I make my jokes about 45, but I really think it's about a multiracial democratic society where truly everyone has rights. I'm excited about being a part of trying to push that future forward the same way my grandparents, my great-grandparents, and so many of uh, the idols and iconoclasts that came before me have done. I feel like that's my role. Whether we'll get there or not, who knows? But, um, you know, I'm not trying. You know, if you're not worth dying for, then it's probably not worth doing. That's amazing. Um, do you find, because you mentioned something where there's all these tools at our disposal. Yes. Right? Um, whether you're a brand and you're trying to reach an audience or you're an artist trying to do the exact same thing, mm -hmm. do you see that people are overwhelmed in any way? And, like, what choices, what platforms, what story, like you talked about, mm -hmm. the even the breakdown of, like, the time of the storytelling goes yes. belongs in this medium or exactly. this format. But it, those rules are... the greatly don't apply in some scenarios. Completely. Do you find that people are overwhelmed in how they push forward their brand as a business or as a personal brand? And like, I just want to be an artist. I just want to play my guitar. Right? I, I don't want to tweet and do Instagram and be on Snapchat and, you know, update my Facebook page and do all this stuff. I just want to make music. Well, I, I think that that's great if people cared about what you wanted. But what you really want to do is tell a story and connect with an audience. And if you're not willing to do the work, well, then that's your problem. And I think that what we often do, I believe, is two things. One, we make ourselves the test case, and we pretend that what we want and what our friends want is what everybody wants. And I believe that's a huge issue. And that issue is compounded with the fact that we also use digital to curate exactly what we want to hear. So as my friend Shelley Palmer says, our trust circles are going to kill us because what that really means is we cut off the voices that we don't want to hear and pretend they're invisible. So as an artist, you have to be open to those voices. Like, I am not Republican or Democrat or liberal. I'm none of those things. I'm a storyteller who wants to connect with everybody. Hell, half my family is Orange County hardcore Republican and half my family is Southern Democrat. I don't want nobody to die. <laughs> right, I want right. everybody to flourish. So as a storyteller, the fact that digital has transformed it is fine. I think what's more important to look at is some people use Twitch. Some people use WhatsApp. I don't care what platform you're on. I just want to connect to you authentically on whatever platform you chose. Right. I don't get to tell you that you need to switch over to this platform to talk to me. Who the fuck am I? What is that about? No, my role is to put my stuff out authentically where you are so that we can connect. And maybe you'll choose to move over with me and we connect over here. But if you don't, that's not your job. That's my job. Right. That's what an artist does. So I feel like that's my role. I understand some artists don't think that's their job. I understand some artists don't believe that that's the way that they want to live their lives. I completely get that. I also understand that <laughs> AI is going to take your job. Right. If you don't iterate, if you don't continue to iterate, it's what happens with so many people. If you do not continue to fight, if you do not continue to change, if you do not continue to try and figure way a new way forth, you will be obsolete and irrelevant. And if that's what you want to do, I can't stop you. Stand on your high principles. But just know, nobody knows who Mickey Rooney is anymore. And that's a kind of a sad thing, because Mickey Rooney was pretty awesome. He was pretty awesome. <laughs> you know, so we've, we've lost touch with those elements, right? Technology has chopped them off, and we're not looking back for them. So if we don't pull them forward, how are kids ever going to know what actually transpired here because history is written by the victor and technology gives us an opportunity to actually look back and see a little bit about what the other side was talking about because just because the victor won doesn't mean the victor was right. It's brilliant. Well stated. Um, you're, you're quite poetic. As we wind down here, uh, complete this phrase for me. Innovation to me is... Sexy. How so? 
trying to have sex with it. <laughs> trying to make more babies out of this innovation game. <laughs> I, I, I laughed. I started laughing, and then I realized you weren't laughing. I was like, oh, he's No, he's no, I, I was just stone-posting <laughs> you because I wanted to see what you were going to do. I was like, ah, uh, <laughs> wait. Right. I'm, I'm a child. I'm sorry. Uh, it is sexy. I, it, look, I mean, I've had sex with innovation. Of course. Who hasn't? And, and to be fair, I think that's where VR is really going to take yes. off. <laughs> VDR. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I just got virtual syphilis. <laughs> this sucks. I'm a VDR expert. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it really is because innovation gives us an opportunity to see the world in a way that we hadn't before. I think it does, and it gives us an opportunity to see ourselves uh, in some ways more clearly. And if we can use it to connect to other people, it's awesome. Uh, if it cuts us off from other people, then I think it'll get less interesting. That's just for me personally. Yeah. But, you know, some people are introverts and feel totally fine. Like, don't touch me. I'll just stay here. Very true. Yeah. Uh, where can people find more of you? Where do you want to point them to? Where should they follow? Even though it's your job to follow them, truly. What? Uh, where can they find you? Look, I'm I'm the Orlando Jones on most platforms. If you get lost and you can't find me, I'm at orlandojones.com. That's easy to locate. Um, if you're on iTunes, you can grab Book of Love, watch that, Madiba, and watch that. Uh, Amazon, Twitch, as I said, you can see Ghost Recon: War Within the Cartels, and uh, American Gods is on. April 30th on Stars. So those are several places you can keep me uh, keep me in mind, and uh, hopefully you'll uh, come check me out, and we'll uh, get to vibe again. Thank you. Did you have a good time? You're extremely good at this. No, oh, stop it. No, that's no, true, because you're funny. You're legitimately funny. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> so this is actually a lot of fun. You're, you're very good at this, and the work you're doing, I think, is extraordinary with the group of people that you're bringing together into this, and I'm, I just feel honored that you let me be a part of it. So thank you, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. Truly. Um, everyone, this has been another installment of Innovation Crush. I'm going to go home and cry. Uh, and we will talk to you <laughs> next time. <laughs>